My mother believed and my father believed that if I wanted to be president of the United States, I could be, I could be vice president. This is America. Former Vice President Joe Biden has been elected president of the United States. It is my greatest honor and privilege to have been your president. We will be back in some form. We are still deeply divided. Public health experts warned this was coming unless more was done. And here we are now. Are you proud of what happened here today? Absolutely. Never before in American history has there been an uprising like this. Of the 75 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump, I don't know how many today are feeling, dear God, what was I thinking? But I would wager a lot more are thinking, let's carry on this fight. Character matters. It matters. Tell them the truth matters. The 21st century is going to be the American century. Because we lead not only by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. That is the history of the journey of America. As the Senate blocks a bill to codify abortion rights in federal law, the uproar from the imminent rollback of Roe v. Wade continued this week in America. Our Irish woman in America, Mary McKeown, is here, as always, to walk us through what's really going on across the pond. Today on the podcast, we will look at a shift in confidence in the Supreme Court, California's new gun law challenge, the return of the good old-fashioned workers' union, terrifying new statistics on the number of drug overdoses in America in the past year, more January 6th revelations, and one of the most shocking studies from the US Department of Interior into the deaths of 500 Native American children. Marion, that is a lot to get through before we even get to Ukraine and COVID. We really are living in some strange days. Is it the most polarised you've known America to be since you arrived there? Yeah, you know, I I think that there were, I think that there have been efforts in the last sort of year or two and post-COVID to bring the country together more. They've been spearheaded by Joe Biden, but they haven't worked. They haven't worked because I think that although Joe Biden was initially quite popular with um, independents and moderate Republicans, the combination of soaring inflation, of a sort of a weird ambivalence with America, with the, you know, with their lives, with where the country's going, prices at the petrol pump, the price of groceries, and then a sort of a sense of that the cultural wars are deepening and widening is not giving Biden the sort of vote of confidence. People don't believe now that he can bring the country together. And I think that, you know, now that both Democrats and Republicans and independents, all three are, are disillusioned, there's sort of a feeling of a free-for-all at the moment. And I think that the biggest thing, the biggest and most shameful, to my mind, um, implement our, our lever in in pushing the country further apart over the past couple of years. Well, obviously, Donald Trump has been one factor, but the Supreme Court has undeniably been the other. It has waded into cultural wars. It had no business getting into. It has turned settled law and priesthood on its head, in not just in the abortion area, but in other areas as well. And now it's threatening to, to overturn gun laws in New York that will have huge consequences nationwide. It's also threatening to overturn uh, affirmative action in colleges in, in the case involves 
Harvard in particular. And it's also going to try and allow bring back religion to sports games so that you will have, um, you know, religious prayers before a game or whatever in schools and colleges. And, you know, I mean, that that in itself may not sound like a big deal to, to us. But when you couple that with the fact that, you know, 34 maths books have been whipped off the taken out of school curriculums in Florida alone because they might you know imply something about you know race theory and you've got all this whole anti-gay movement in school you know about about teaching children about you know the various sort of genders and 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 just taking a sane approach to it and and so you know when when you you know but then on the other hand you have as I said bring back school prayer bring back the old 1950s Christian white America. And it really is just pitting two sides of the country against each other uh, more and more every day. And, and, you know, you take into that. What I worry about coming up is not so much the 2022 election results, but the 2024, because people now don't have faith in the Supreme Court. They don't have faith in the electoral system. They believe elections can be stolen from under their noses. And I think when you put all those things together, if people don't get the result they want in 2024, they're going to say this election was stolen. And I think that that's where democracy unravels. You know, if you can't believe in any of your institutions and you can't believe in your system of democracy and you can't even believe that your vote is being counted, well, you know, where does that leave a democratic yeah, and Is it possible to put the genie back in the bottle? A Yahoo News YouGov poll this week published uh, showed this decline that you're talking about in American confidence in the Supreme Court. Now, this has spanned all the way back to the Amy Comey Barrett confirmation to the court in 2020. But it also it relates to two weeks ago and the revelations, I guess, that the court is preparing to overturn federal abortion law. And the poll found that half of registered voters yeah. now have little or no confidence in the Supreme Court. Now, how good is a poll like that? Like, how trustworthy is it? Because it says some pretty specific things, like 26% of respondents said that they have no confidence in the court at all. And 24% said they have little confidence yeah. in it. Just, was it 37% said they had some confidence? I mean, what do these percentages mean? I mean, it's pretty damning either way. You know, the thing is, five years ago, 66% and 68% in two different polls said they had a lot of confidence in the Supreme Court. That a lot has gone down to 14%. They have lost 53, the goodwill, like the unquestioned goodwill of more than half of the American population in five years. That's staggering. I mean, when you look at that, as I say, the Supreme Court was always, you know, when when people are polled about about the Congress, about the Senate and the House of Congress in particular, it's always in the 20s and 30s. They hate their representatives. They think they're useless. They think they go to Washington and do nothing except scratch their rears and feather their nests. You know, and I mean, and that's been the way for really quite a while now. It'll go up and down depending on if a significant piece of legislation gets passed. But they really see that Congress does nothing except quibble and fight with each other and and that they're locked in this perpetual war of attrition. And, you know, the, the American public's view of Congress, as I said, that in the 20s um, and low 30s reflects that depending on who the president is because the country's so polarized Joe Biden started off with I think it was around 57-58% approval which has now gone down to about 42% so he's lost 
about 16%. Not that surprising, given everything that's happened, given the inflation, given, you know, all the other stuff that's going on in the country. But he's not he's not perceived as doing a great job. And that is a problem for Joe Biden. But, you know, presidents never go above, even really popular presidents never go above about 60%. That's a good result for a president. And they only ever get that if they're going out the door and people go, ah, they weren't so bad, you know. And uh, so, but for the Supreme Court, like the one in institution in America that has consistently over the years had the highest approval ratings of any of the branches of the judiciary, that it has plummeted to such an extent and with such speed is is really staggering. And that to me is the most worrying signal uh, because whatever about presidents, whatever about Trump going to 35 or whatever, that's fine. That's a democracy. You can vote those guys out. You can't vote out the Supreme Court. And that and that is the problem. Last week, you spoke to us about whether the anger that is taking place in relation to this Roe v. Wade rollback is sustainable until November. Now, in the wake of the bombshell leak last week that, again, we discussed as a sort of revelation in that such a leak had never taken place before. There's this vote where Democrats forced this vote to advance a bill that would enshrine abortion rights into federal law. My first question is, yeah. what was all this about? Uh, had no such vote taken place prior to this? Uh, wh- why not? And is Joe Manchin just rubbing his hands together and loving the attention that this has got him? You know, I think a bit of all of these. Now, just to be clear, the vote, when what the Democrats wanted or allegedly wanted was a very simple yes or no vote, up or down. Should we codify the abortion law so that there's a federal law that says that protects women's rights to abortion? And that would be very simple. That would be just like something that would say, yes, there is a right. There's a federal right. So all you states, Texas, you know, Ohio, et cetera, et cetera, take note because you can't now legislate, you know, to, to take away that right. So for for people like Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, Republican senators who said, oh, my God, we never knew that when we voted for Brett Kavanaugh, gasp, shock, horror, and Amy Coney Barrett, that they'd actually do this. Well, that was a perfect opportunity for them to rehabilitate their bona fides on, on a woman's right to choose and to say, you know what? We're going to vote with the Democrats on this because we really feel that we were suckered by the Supreme Court, by the justices that we confirmed. So if they had been genuine about that, that this was a really good chance for them to vote with the Democrats. But of course, you know, as we've said so many times on this show, survival is the first and most powerful law of politics. And no Republican is going to vote to do anything to damage their own career or hasten their own political demise. Now, I think that this could actually backfire against both of these women because Maine, where Susan Collins is, is a senator from, is a pretty kind of prickly independent state. It's slightly more Republican than Democrat, but it's slightly more independent than Republican. And, you know, and she really, I'm not sure that that what her her position on this is going to play well at all for her uh, come her next time that she has to go before the voters. Uh, and I think she was re-elected in 2020. So it's going to be 2026 before she has to face them again. She's probably gambling on that. But also um, for Lisa Murkowski, who's generally seen 
as a sensible Republican. She's relatively moderate. She's a smart shooter, uh, but she is a Republican nonetheless. And uh, she has, you know, she hasn't been afraid to to a couple of times before to go against Republicans, you know, the, the orthodoxy and certain things. But here, clearly, they all just went under the whip and they all said, OK, we're going to vote against this. And as I said, it makes it very hard for them to square that circle where on the one hand they were saying we would we, we were misled by Kavanaugh and Coney Barrett and Gorsuch. Uh, and now when they're given the chance to rectify the, the misleading, they decide not to do it. So and this is exactly what the Democrats want, because, you know, Democrats are so often because they're not strategic, because they don't fight properly, because they don't message properly. They're so often reduced to these symbolic gestures. You remember when they all arrived up from Texas um, a while back because they were they were trying to stop gerrymandering, I think it was, from happening in Texas. And, and they all the, the Texas senators left the state and they were going to arrest them to bring them back and whatever. But it was an empty, it was an empty, um, you know, threat. It was, it was a symbolic protest. So what the Democrats have done here now is they knew this bill was going to fail. They knew it had no chance of passing. But what they wanted to do was to pin the senators' colours to the mast so they couldn't go back and do what Collins and Murkowski were trying to do to say, oh, goodness, we're so shocked and upset about this because they're going to say, look, you had a chance and you voted against women's rights. You voted against a federal right to protect women's rights and to, to choose. So that that is that was really the sole purpose of this vote. They brought another one in February, a similar one. That also failed. So they knew this was going to fail. But as I say, that's all very good for, you know, the parlor games in Washington. It's not very good for women who are living in Texas and Georgia and all these other places, Florida, who, you know, all these games they're playing in Washington are, are are really of no use to them, you know, because they're the ones who are in these situations. So I feel a bit exasperated by all of this, to be quite honest. I really feel, oh, yeah, you know, I get that Democrats are now trying to say, if you want to protect the right, um, women's rights, you better vote for us in November. But it's also a bit, you know, like... Using this, uh, yes, I understand why they're using it as a political get out the vote. But as I say, that to me, the Democrats should have constantly been banging on about, look, this Supreme Court is being hijacked by the Republicans. If you don't want... Um, if you want to go back to the 1950s, which is pretty much what this court wants America to do, then, you know, if you don't want that, then you better get out and vote. They have never highlighted the Supreme Court. And to be fair, Democrats have never seemed that interested, as we said last week, in the Supreme Court when they're going to the polls. And uh, But, you know, the Republicans have, have always put that front and centre of every election campaign and it has worked for them. So, you know, as I say, Democrats never... They always exasperate me in in the way that they fight and their lack of vision and their lack of guts and conviction when they when they do get into battle with the Republicans uh, who just outfox them at every turn. Tell me, you know, you bring up the good old days and this old America. And the more I read and the more I go back through things and the more things it gets referenced in, the more I wonder, is this fear and loathing for the future or the current state of America. Is that at the centre of this, that all of these decisions and these people that we find so hard to understand a lot of the time, we shake our head. But what are they chasing here? Is it genuine nostalgia? Is that the motivator? 
No, I think that if you scratch the surface of their nostalgia where they think, oh, gee, remember the days when all the neighbours were like Mr. Rogers and we all had well-paying manufacturing jobs and we all had this and all the women knew their places and they all stayed at home and made cookies for the kids. You know, I mean, that is what a lot, that is what most white men in America want. They want an America that was dominated by white men. So if in the 1950s, if you were a black man or woman or child, America was a pretty lousy, scary place to live. If you were a woman in America in the 1950s, even a white woman, even a wealthy white woman, you still were almost powerless. You had no control over your own body. You had no right to contraception. You had no right to an awful lot of things. And, you, you know, I mean, you were by and large, expected to stay at home and and raise the children. And America was a deeply puritanical place for the most part back back then. But it was a time when white American males unquestionably ruled the roost in every area, in their homes, in politics, in business, you know, everywhere, in unions, you name it. And and so this is all, when I go to outside of, of um, the cities on the coasts, I hear constantly real America. People, and you know, Donald Trump used to talk about real America as well all the time. Real America is code for that kind of white supremacist America that existed in the 1950s. And the nostalgia is not for a gentler time when crime was low and neighbors talked to each other. The nostalgia is for a time when, as I said, white men ruled the roost and they were unchallenged in all areas. And you, they you said stay now. Most men in America want this. Is that is that really the case? Well, no, I think mo- I think a lot of Republican white men want this. And this is why they voted for Donald Trump, because this is what he suggested. He wanted an America where there were no immigrants coming in, where he spoke about, you know, this fanciful notion that he'd get back all these jobs. You know, in 1974, a CEO in America was paid, I think it was at the most 24 times more than the employee on the factory floor or the guy who was making the car parts or whatever. And now, you know, their their pay their, their salaries are it's it's off the pitch. You know, workers' salaries have, have really frozen in, in, in real terms, whereas the this salaries of CEOs are now in the millions and tens of millions. So America, a lot of America has gotten much poorer and a tiny fraction of America has gotten much wealthier. And that is really a lot of the problem with with America at the moment. The the perception and the actuality of this huge inequality. And of course, then you add to that, that the super wealthy in America don't pay their taxes. You know, they, they, they just don't pay their fair share. They have ways and means of hiving off all their money. And, and you know, they, they will act like if they so choose, they'll set up a foundation of their choice and help areas that they decide, even when they're doing good work like Bill Gates. You know, he gets to decide. We don't get to decide where our taxes go. You know, and I think a lot of Americans are really just fed up with that. So I think there are a number of things. And, you know, so like, as I said, this, the anti-immigration thing is first and foremost, and that also, you know, translated, translates into a racism. We've heard the dog whistles over the last five years. And, you know, they're, they're more like bullhorn yells and dog whistles, in fact, you know, against black people, against Jewish people, against minorities, and really, and the misogyny that has soared. And I said, you take a guy like Donald Trump Jr. or J.D. Vance, they are typical of the 40-something Republican males, the Trump voters. You know, they they have these sort of 
grievance addled him. And, you know, and, and you wonder, I was actually talking to somebody last week, a friend of mine in the States. I said, what's J.D. Vance got to complain about? He's a kid from Ohio who went to Harvard, who became a millionaire in Harvard, who wrote a best-selling book, who became a media darling, and now he's a senator, even though he never did a day's political graft work in his life, and he's still angry, and he's still complaining. You know, yeah, who is he mad at, yeah. exactly? Uh, I mean, you mentioned in a text to me today that he views these figures that have been released, this 700,000 Americans yeah. have died from drug overdoses, in 2021, a new high yeah. for the United States as communities across the nation, uh, you know, remain in this tight grip of what is now a yeah. decades long opioid price crisis. Yeah, you know, this data, he, he comes out on Wednesday or it comes out on Wednesday from the CDC. Yeah. And can we really compare 2021 to any other year? Is this not just a spike that reflects how strange a year it was and how crazy this year had been. And J.D. Vance's claims, of course, that it's Biden's way of culling GOP voters. Yeah, well, look, and you know what? I have his quote here in front of me and I'm going to to read it out for the gang because honestly, it's just so absurd. And then I'm going to just get into the actual statistics because I got the CDC report and I went through it. And what he says is so debunked just by the facts. So he started off during an interview um, about a week and a half ago, I think it was, or no, slightly more actually, late April, uh, saying, if you wanted to kill a bunch of MAGA voters, in the middle of the heartland, how better than to target them and their kids with this deadly fentanyl? It does look intentional. It's like Joe Biden wants to punish people who didn't vote for him and opening up the floodgates to the border is one way to do it. So what he's saying, first of all, is that, okay, Joe Biden is you know, fed up with all these Republicans, all these rural hillbillies who vote the MAGA bros. And he's going to, you know, he's decided, okay, I'm going to kill them by letting drugs come in across the border, you know, and and turning a blind eye. Okay, so first of all, drug dealers, by and large, especially the ones who are bringing in fentanyl, they don't bring it across the border. Or if they do, they bring it in under tunnels. They bring it by and large on private planes, on boats. They're not coming across the border. What's crossing the border is migrants and asylum seekers by and large. The amount of drugs that actually is is comes across the border, it's one of the smallest ways of bringing them. Now, secondly, under the Biden, so let's just allow that, that first of all, most of the drugs come in through, as I said, private boats, planes, tunnels and other sophisticated means. Now, so we put that to one side. Now, the, the drugs that do come in over the border. So during the Trump administration, I think around seven, no, 7,000 pounds of fentanyl was seized in 2020. And that was when COVID was, of course, kicking off and people were locked up. They were on, you know, shelter in place orders and they were having a horrible time. And especially people who were already poor and already addicted and already, you know, suffering from social problems. So that's how much was seized in um, during the, the last year of the Trump administration. The next year, the Biden administration, 40, 50% more was seized. So the, the, there was ten, nearly 11,000 pounds worth was seized. So the Biden administration managed to grab and prevent getting into circulation. 50% more than the Trump. Now, you might say more was coming in. That's very possible, yes. But also, um, 
the Homeland Security, uh, and this is all, again, statistics that I've downloaded, uh, the Homeland Security, uh, the people who basically watch out for narcotics and drug smugglers, made almost 13,000 arrests in um, 2021. They seized 2.4 million pounds of all kinds of drugs, cocaine, narcotics, pills, etc. And that is so much more than what Joe Biden did. It's twice what Joe Biden, and he had 1.3 million pounds of drugs. And I, he arrested about, I think it was about eight or 9,000 people. So it seems to me that the border, the drug people, the DEA are working an awful lot harder harder in the last year. Maybe they've been given more resources by Biden. I don't know. But also the rate, um, 107,000 deaths in 2021 from drugs is a shocking number. It's absolutely shocking and it's tragic. And, you know, I've seen the effect and I've spoken to you about this before, Charlotte, where I've been at. And again, it's, it's at Trump rallies in places like Ohio and Michigan. And I've seen the Trump supporters and they, you know, they've been so obviously stoned. I've seen them bring children, small toddlers and babies who have been grey with neglect. I mean, it's heartbreaking to see this. And the parents are nodding out at these rallies and, and the, you know, these children, it, it really does break your heart. And it's, you know, this but are, is, those, are those people, are those the drugs that those people are, t- I mean, you say stone, but those people aren't, they're, it's they're not shooting up. No, it, it's it's opioids. They are fentanyl, you know, because fentanyl is very, very cheap and it's very, very strong. And that's why it's in such high demand in communities where people are very poor. They're, to put it crudely and horribly, they get more bang for their buck with fentanyl than they do with heroin or when they have to buy, you know, pills now like Oxycontin and crush them up and whatever else. But, but another, one of the others, statistics from the CDC shows that in during the Trump era, six, 65,571 people died in the US in the 21-month period ending January 2017. And that ran up to 94,000 in, in, you know, the, in the year after. Drug, in, drug overdoses increased by 45% during the Trump era. He came in promising to, cra- to get rid of the drug, the drug problem, but the number of deaths increased by 45%. Now, in the, the year and a half of Biden, that number has increased to bring it up to 107,000 by another 15%. So Biden's had a 15% increase. It's deeply worrying. It's shocking. But Trump had a 45% increase. So when J.D. Vance is saying that this is all a big plot by Biden, it just doesn't stack up. Because as I said, there was a much more rapid spike in deaths under Trump. Twice the number of drugs are being seized at the border under Biden. Twice the number of arrests are being made of of, um, drug smugglers, etc., etc., under Biden, even in, in a year period. So what, what he is saying, and also one of the key things is the main number of people who are being killed by this is black men. And so another statistic shows that there were 54 fatal drug overdoses for every 100,000 black men in America. There were 44.2 for white men and 27.3 for Hispanics. Now, these are all far too high. But the death rate among black men has more than tripled to 
16% between 2015 and 2020. There was an increase of 69% for white men during that period, which was the Trump era exactly. 69% more white men died during the Trump era, but 213% more black men died from drug overdoses. So that shows you the degree to which the problem spun even more out of control during the Trump era, but it also affected black men disproportionately. Now, so it, it basically debunks every aspect of what J.D. Vance is claiming, and it just proves the nonsense that it is and the political, you know, triggering that he's trying to do and this sort of like unbased grievance adult nonsense that he spouts. Well, there's definitely a big market for it, but it doesn't take much yeah, to it's, it's upend tragic. it. I mean, it's it's quite obvious what's happened in America and across the world in terms of those on the fringes who lost their jobs, who society already had forgotten about and couldn't have given less fucks about were left to sort themselves out in a lot of cases. And I would imagine that if we compare these statistics to the UK and Ireland and other first world countries, there might be similar spikes. Maybe I'm wrong on that. I don't know, Charlotte, because I, you know, I think that the American war on drugs has been singularly unsuccessful. You have over two million people in American prisons, a massive, overwhelming percentage of those people are in prison for drug-related offences. And, you know, any prison, any person who has worked with prisoners in the States that I've spoken to, and even prison guards that I've spoken to, will tell you that people may go into prison without a drug problem, but they sure as hell come out with one. You know, and, and, and so I think that there is a different approach uh, in the United States. It has been so hardline. It's been so punish, punish, punish. It's all about retribution rather than rehabilitation. And so I think, yeah, you know, Ireland, we know that that deprived communities everywhere, the connection between deprivation, between multi-generational you know, addiction problems that stem largely from deprivation and lack of opportunity. It happens in every country. You know, I worked as a barrister briefly in Ireland and I remember being down in the four courts. And again, you would see people coming in on drug related offences and they would read out the reports and they would have come from homes, you know, and they'd be like 18, 19, 20 year old men and women. And some of them had young children already. And the, the, the court reports would note that their parents had been drug addicts and that in some cases their grandparents had. And, you know, so these kids are, if they're not given opportunity to somehow break the cycle, that cycle will continue because it's it's what they know and it's what they're raised with. And the same is true in America, where you have multi-generational addictions of alcoholism and drug abuse and violence in these areas, like in the Appalachian areas, in the poor parts of America, in the, the rural areas that are really deprived and in the areas that the urban areas that are, are really blighted by unemployment, lousy housing, lousy health care. You know, so these problems all go together, but there's no will in any of the countries, not just America, it seems to be, to tackle the problems at source, to recognize that if you don't get kids and even, you know, get them into schools, keep them in schools, give them good nutrition, give them school lunches, you know, sort of just make it a community thing that you you give young kids an opportunity to break out of these cycles. And, and you know, and it, it, there's no silver bullet. It will take 
decades probably to do it. But you see in, in countries like Sweden and Norway, it's not that, the, that, that nobody in Sweden and Norway would take drugs. It's that they have different intervention paths and programs. They have different prison systems and they absolutely have different education systems where, you know, children are given at least a fighting chance starting out. You know, it, it's just not true in the States. And I think it's not true in a lot of Europe, including Ireland, where if you're born in a very poor, deprived community, the chances are you're going to stay there. Well, Marion, there is an awful lot more to talk about this week. As we said at the top of the show, so many other topics to cover, including these John Eastman emails. Donald Trump's former lawyer urged Pennsylvania lawmakers to sow doubt in the 2020 election. Surprise, surprise. And even suggested throwing out absentee ballots. We're going to talk all about that. And of course, that story, a first uh, of its kind federal study of Native American boarding schools that for more than a century uh, attempted to assimilate indigenous children into white society. Now, they've identified more than 400 such schools that were supported by the US government that had more than 50 associated burial sites, a figure that will undoubtedly grow. We've also got to talk about the semi-automatic weapons law in California. Mind-boggling stuff. And if we've got time, the rise of the Starbucks and Amazon unions. We've got a lot to talk about. There's only one way to hear it. Come over to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. Irishman Abroad can't go on anymore without your support on Patreon. It's now that simple. That's where we are. We're offering a 15% discount in May so you can pay for your full year of Irishman Abroad episodes and there's never really been a better time to do it. So head over to patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad and let's take Irishman Abroad into the future. Ready? You have the cameras rolling. This is America. A lot of people who would probably consider themselves liberal have done very well financially under the Donald Trump four years. You encouraged espionage against our people. You condemn any interference by Russia in the American election. By Russia or anybody else. Russia, please, if you can, get us Hillary Clinton's emails. Please, Russia, please. To renew America, we must revitalize our democracy.